So, the question of the sermon is, what is so exciting about the gospel? What is at the core of this gospel that can excite, energize, engage, enliven, enrich? What is at the core of this gospel that so moved the Apostle Paul? And not only Paul, but scores of people through the centuries. Those that are unknown and those that are well-known, such as Martin Luther from the Reformation. So today we begin this series of messages from the Book of Romans. Some have referred to the Book of Romans as the Cathedral of the Christian Faith. Others have referred to it as John 3.16, fully amplified. The letter to the Romans was written about 57 AD to the church in Rome by Paul the Apostle, and in all likelihood he was in the city of Corinth on a missionary journey, and he took time to reflect on the Christian faith and to write to the believers in this city of Rome. Of interest to us, and particularly to me, this is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, 1517. And Martin Luther, of course, was a key player in that Reformation. For Martin Luther, the book of Romans was a really critical book for him. I have a quote on the screen behind me, which is taken from his commentary, the preface to his commentary on the book of Romans. And it's written within the first, I think, paragraph, or at most, at the second paragraph. He says, This letter is truly the most important piece in the New Testament. It is purest gospel. It is well worth a Christian's while not only to memorize it word for word, but also to occupy himself with it daily, as if though it were the daily bread of the soul. So there you have a challenge. You can memorize the book of Romans in 2017, uh, starting this afternoon and working on it. My guess is there's some in our setting, uh, some that have gone through Bible quizzing, that probably somewhere along the way may have memorized these 16 chapters. Uh, I was not involved in Bible quizzing. I wasn't a believer as a teenager. Uh, But I worked on memorizing, not the whole book, but I got to chapter 13 as a young adult. Some of the most enriching experiences of my life uh, to walk through that and reflect on these verses. Now, you don't don't ask me immediately after the service if I would quote Romans chapter 8 verse whatever the number might be, because I don't know, I'm not current with it. But there's something to be said about what Martin Luther was suggesting here this reflection upon the Word of God and the engagement upon the Word of God, most specifically the book of Romans. I was energized by this book. I was energized by the Gospels that reflect it, and clearly Martin Luther was equally energized by it as well. So what is it about the Gospel that is so exciting and so energizing So what we will do is we'll look at the first 17 verses, and really what I want to get to is verses 16 and 17, 
which many would suggest is the thesis statement, the central statement for the whole book of Romans, and obviously for our text as well today. So we'll read through those verses, and there's lots of energy and lots of excitement through those verses as we read what Paul wrote about the gospel and what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ and the implications of his engagement with the church at Rome. But then when we get to verses 16 and 17, we'll spend a little bit more time there, and we will illustrate from the life of Martin Luther himself, because these verses, 16 and 17, were critically important to him. So let's step into this. A reading, a few comments along the way, and then we'll pause more at verses 16 and 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul identifies himself with verse 1 here. His master, his master is Jesus Christ. His office, he is an apostle. And his purpose is he is set apart for the gospel of God. Paul the Apostle, right away, right right here, right up front, verse 1, identifies this unifying thought. The word gospel is used in verse 1, it's used in verse 2, it's used in verse 15, I believe, in 16 and 17, repeated a number of times. It is the unifying word for these 17 verses, but not only for these 17 verses, but for the whole book. The book is about the gospel of God, about Jesus Christ. So Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures of the early early church, the Old Testament. They did not have a New Testament as we had it. So we have referred to in the Advent season the gospel of Isaiah. They saw the gospel, the Holy Scriptures. They went to the book of Isaiah. I've heard it referred, the gospel according to Moses. You go to the first five books and you'll see indicators of the gospel in those first five books. Or the gospel according to the Psalms. So for Martin Luther, for example, Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus uttering those words from the cross. Those words helped Martin Luther to understand the cross event. Those words helped him to understand his own sin. And he would have referred to his own sin, not just my sin, but he would have talked about it as my vile and despicable sin of my life. And then those words, as he sees the suffering of Christ through Psalm 22, verse 1, the gospel, he was able to see the gift of righteousness. And thus, Romans chapter 1, verse 17, becomes really important to him. So, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verses 3 and 4 were probably, these two verses, this statement here, probably was a confessional statement used in the early church. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the God, the Son of God, in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So perhaps in some of their worship services, they might have started it off by declaring together, we believe that Jesus, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. And we also believe that Jesus, through the spirit of holiness, was declared the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And they would have maybe started some of their services with that very statement. And central to those two verses, of course, is the resurrection. Those of you well acquainted with the book of Acts know that the resurrection is central through the book of Acts. Virtually every sermon that you hear through the book of, of, the book of Acts, the resurrection comes out in the early church. And of course, not only in the early church, but continuing today as well. As Acts chapter 29 continues to be played out in the world, the resurrection is a key part of that gospel story. Verses 5 and 6, he refers and reflects on his calling as an apostle. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. And you also are also and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul, in all likelihood, is referring to his Damascus Road experience where he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a part of that Damascus Road experience, there was the call on his life that he would become an apostle to the Gentiles. And I think that's what he's reflecting on in verses 5 and 6. Verse 7 is the salutation. And as Pastor Kevin read it earlier, it says, To all in Rome, but we could read as well, To all in Saskatoon who are loved by God and, and, and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think it would be true with all of the salutations that Paul uses with all of his letters. It's always grace and peace. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. It's never peace and grace because it begins with the grace of God. And once we have and we understand and we experience the grace of God, there is a peace that flows from the understanding of the grace of God. Verse 8, first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Because of the energy, because of the work of the Holy Spirit, there was this spontaneous expansion of the kingdom of God. Rome had the gospel, though no known missionary work had been done in that city up to that point in time. And somehow the gospel found its way to the city of Rome and there were believers in there. And that faith was being talked about by believers in other corners of the world. Verses 9 and 10. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be open for me to come to you. His prayer was answered. Um, eventually, in due time, he did go to Rome, albeit as a prisoner. And it kind of illustrates that sometimes we ask and we make prayer requests and God answers, but ultimately maybe the answer isn't exactly what we would like. Uh, he went as a prisoner, and he was a prisoner in Caesarea for two years along the Mediterranean. Then he appealed to Rome, and he got to Rome, and he was there as a prisoner for two years. And we don't exactly know the timeline, but then a few years later, he died as a martyr in this city of Rome. So in Rome today, there is a place of burial where it's suggested that this is where Paul is, apostle, is buried, St. Paul's Cathedral, outside the walls in Rome. He, he would have been buried there, and eventually a church would have been built there to, to remember the spot where Paul, the apostle, was buried. So there's a lesson here in terms of sometimes our prayer requests don't get answered exactly 
as we thought they might be. Verse 11, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Verse 11 is not language that we use a lot in um, Mennonite brethren's circles. Uh, but I, if I have heard this language in any particular setting, it be primarily charismatic circles where people will talk about, uh, I would love to be able to impart through prayer, laying on of hands, a spiritual gift to you. And that very word spiritual gift there is the word charisma. We get that word charismatic from that and that ministry that happens through the Spirit of God. And Paul prayed for Timothy with the laying on of hands and uh, imparting of a certain gift to him as well. Verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles as well. So here's Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, the most prominent city in the empire, the most prominent Gentile city in the, in the empire, of course, was the city of Rome. So he wanted to get to this city in order that he might proclaim the gospel there as well. It would be kind of akin like um, someone coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ in the prairies, and they've never been to the urban larger cities of the city of, of, of Canada, and they feel a calling to the largest cities of our nation. And so they would want to get to Toronto. They would want to get to Montreal. They would want to get to Vancouver in order that in different ways they might be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's Paul, the, Gent the apostle to the Gentiles. He needs to get to the city of Rome. He wants to get to the city of Rome. He, he writes this, this long letter, this well-thought-of letter, because he wants to connect with this city of Rome within the empire. Verse 14, I am obligated both to the Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And then we get to verses 16 and 17, which I would suggest, and many other people would suggest, is the central statement of Romans. For I am not ashamed. It's Paul's way of saying, I am proud of the gospel for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, as indicated earlier, these two verses were critically important to Martin Luther, uh, this is year 500 of the Reformation. It was back in 1517, Wittenberg, Germany. He nailed what was came to be known as 95 Theses on the, on the church door and it was invitation to other scholars and religious leaders to enter into discussion and debate about issues related to the Christian faith at that time. Luther did not anticipate that the Reformation would become what it became. But again, these two verses were really important to him. Uh, what Paul had to say in these two verses were life-changing. So let's look at these three different points out of these two verses. Going back to the question of what is so exciting 
about the gospel. And ultimately, we need to be able to answer that question, or we'd want to be able to answer that question. Three different points here. First one, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to those who believe. The pressing questions in Martin Luther's life, how does a person find assurance of salvation of heaven? How does a person find peace with God? How does an unrighteous and sinful person find the righteousness of God? Those questions prompted him to become a monk. Because the understanding 500 years ago is that if you would become a person of the cloth, or if you became a monk and lived an austere life, austere life, that you are more likely to sort of fast-track yourself to heaven, more likely that when you died, you would be received into heaven. He was occupied with the sin of his life. In his first celebration of Mass, and Mass is the service that Catholics would have around the communion experience, the Holy Eucharist, he became stupefied, immobilized, overwhelmed, by his sense of sinfulness before the holiness of God in what he saw as a very sacred moment in celebrating his first Mass. There's a famous quote from Martin Luther, which I would repeat here right away, but this uh, well-known quote reflects his, his sense of sinfulness in his own life. said, Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. The angels surround God. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a little pygmy, say, I want this, or I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I'm speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. End quote. Martin Luther was so occupied with this sin of, matter of sin that he would sometimes take up to six hours a day to try to identify the sins of his life and then to confess them and hopefully somehow find forgiveness. Before his salvation experience, he was caught in this impasse, this, this never-ending circle. One of, the biographers, uh, one of the biographers on his life said this of him about sin, Sins to be forgiven must be confessed. To be confessed, they must be recognized and remembered. If they are not recognized and remembered, they cannot be confessed. If they are not confessed, they cannot be forgiven. And so a man could then, as Martin Luther, could be caught with this sin that wasn't dealt with in his life. He did not have a Damascus Road experience like Paul the Apostle, but he did kind of have a Damascus Road experience in that his director as part of uh, his uh, added contribution in different ways of ministries, asked that Martin Luther would get involved in teaching the Bible. (laughs) And Martin Luther thought, oh, my life is so messed up, I can't do that. And his director said, no, you need to do it. And among the first books that he taught, Galatians, Psalms, and the book of Romans. So in Romans, in 1515, he had to study the book of Romans and then ultimately teach this very book right here. And it's these two verses, among other verses as well, that were critically important to him to discovering that there's something in the gospel, it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes and that he could find for forgiveness for his sins. 
And through that, he found salvation. And, you know, it could be argued that with, if Martin Luther wouldn't have stumbled upon these two verses here, would have we had the Reformation as we did 500 years ago? If the Reformation would not have happened 500 years ago, I don't know if we'd be seated here together like a group of people today. Because history would have, sp- would have spun out totally different in the absence of what happened in 1517. So what makes the gospel exciting? If you are to respond to that, and, and maybe you might be saying, well, I don't know if it is exciting. But what makes the gospel exciting is the gift of salvation. There's power in the gospel that brings salvation. There's something really exciting about remembering what it is that we are saved from and where we are going and the implications of the gospel. So that was one of the first things he discovered. Second thing he discovered, in the gospel of salvation, the righteousness of God is revealed. Martin Luther believed before his salvation that right standing with God came by merit. Thus, the austere life as a monk, thus the ongoing confession of sin, thus his well-known trip to Rome in 1510. He went to Rome, and one of the things he did was there was a set of stairs. I can't remember how many steps. Was it 15 or 20? And you had to go up each step on your knees, and then you had to pray at each step, and that's what he did. And he got to the to the top, and he reflected something to the effect of, well, has this really made a difference in my life? He wasn't totally sure. He actually was disappointed by his trip to the city of Rome. There's a famous quote that Martin Luther used to summarize the uh, conclusion of his trip. He said, um, uh, he said, I went to Rome with onions, and I returned with garlic. In other words, there was still the stench of the sin within his own life. Most distressing for him when he was in Rome was the whole practice of indulgences. Uh, Indulgences, an understanding in the Catholic Church at that point of time, was that those that were already in heaven, the saints that were in heaven, that they've already made it, and with the merit, that the excess merit that they had, that believers on earth who yet weren't in heaven, who haven't gone through the death experience yet, they could somehow access that merit and that would help them more readily get to heaven. Now, albeit they could access those merit, that merit by way of a financial cost. You had to pay for that. Luther reviled and revolted at this teaching of indulgences. Informed by the book of Romans, he reviled it. He revolted at that and said, this is not right. It was a study of Romans... And Galatians, where in verse 17, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. The righteous will live by faith. In verse 17, that word righteousness is actually positioned right up front as the first word, maybe signaling added added importance to that word. He came to understand that righteousness is a status that God confers on believers of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther came to realize that he was declared righteous in the eyes of God. He came to see that righteousness was a gift of God. And he didn't have to merit it. He didn't have to work for it. But it was declared and given to him. And verse 17, key verse in his life. Uh, Last week, I mentioned Romans 5, verses 15 to 17, and we read those verses. 
I'm going to read those verses again here right away. Uh, If there is a place in this book that comes at the core of this gift of righteousness, uh, the book of Romans talks about two gifts, at least two gifts, the gift of eternal life and the gift of righteousness. And in these three verses, this gift, that word the gift, is used five times. Paul, when he's writing this, is totally occupied and preoccupied with this gift of righteousness that is given. And the implications of it, uh, when he gets to verse, the final verse in chapter 5, verse 17 on this, he says, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, how much more will they reign in life through this one man, the Lord Jesus Christ? So going back to that question of what brings excitement to the gospel... Part of it is the understanding of this gift of righteousness. So much that Paul, when he begins to talk about it, he talks about us reigning in life because of our understanding of the gift of righteousness. I'll read the three verses, Romans 5, 15, and 17. A little bit hard to follow because he talks about Adam and then he talks about Christ and some of the language is technical, but it ends and culminates with this Amazing statement that believers in Christ reign in life because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word gift is used five times. Listen for it. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed. The judgment followed sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification, the declaration of being righteous. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness, how much more will they reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. Everything else in the Christian life, it could be argued, flows from this marvelous gift of righteousness, which is part and parcel to the salvation experience. So going back to the question of what's so exciting about the Christian faith, the the Christian faith is one where the righteousness of God has been revealed, and it's offered as a gift to the people of God. And then we begin with the righteous gift of God, and then we begin to live according, or we live a practical righteousness and the works that flow from that. Number three, and this one was just more briefly, uh, we gain salvation, the gift of righteousness, through the simple yet profound and ongoing fact of faith, I should say, a faith that is so accessible. Uh, That really captured the attention of Martin Luther as well. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is uh, revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. We don't pick it up in the English translation here where it says from first to last, from faith from first to last, but the original language there, the word faith is actually repeated a couple times. So it's from, from faith to faith. So as we come in by faith, we continue to go on by faith. Martin Luther, of course, discovered that it was not on the basis of merit and his good works, 
but this fantastic news was accessible to him by exercising faith. I have on the screen here his quote from the preface to the epistle to the uh, Romans, uh, him talking about the importance of faith, but he says, faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust, this kind of faith in in, in the knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. So, what is so exciting about the gospel? Energizing, engaging, enlivening, enriching. Um, three foundational truths. The gospel is the power of God that brings salvation. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And we enter this and we move forward by way of faith. The gospel is totally accept- is accessible. Uh, this is a time of response for us. Um, I guess the heart of the sermon really comes down to, is the gospel engaging and exciting for you? That's really the heart of the question, ultimately, where the rubber hits the road right now, where we're at. If the gospel is exciting and engaging as we respond together, a lot of the response is really going to be one of thankfulness and praise. If you find yourself thinking that is kind of removed from where I'm at, the gospel doesn't seem to be that exciting and engaging, we respond thinking in terms of the significance of these verses right here. And what may need to happen in your life that there would be a movement in that direction where this treasure of all treasure, Jesus talked about the gospel, the treasure in the field, the man who goes, sells everything else to find that treasure. And not in that mindset, in that thinking. What has to happen in terms of your thinking to connect with this, this, this treasure of all treasures, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Later in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, we have this line, Paul says, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. The sermon really is about spiritual fervor. Uh, Where are you at in terms of spiritual fervor with the things of the Lord Jesus Christ?